You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how's your brain this week? Better. Noticeably better. Thank you for asking. We had to cancel last Friday's scheduled co-main event podcast, Patreon streaming event. Postpone. We had to postpone it. Postpone. That's correct. That's that's the correct terminology. Uh, we were going to watch Scorched Earth, Gina Carano vehicle uh, with the kids at home. Everyone was going to be able to tune in to watch. We had to put that off because uh, you got yourself a concussion out there playing City League hockey. That's right. I mean, at least I, I'm going to say mild concussion. You know, it's not like I went to the doctor or anything for it, but uh, took a hard lump on the noggin uh, against the goalpost in a heated 2-2 game in City League hockey, then uh, woke up the next day with a terrible headache that lasted for about two days, and during that time just felt kind of in a funk and, like, thinking was hard, thinking hurt, so yeah. Maybe not at my best for a witty asides, which is kind of the whole ball game when you're watching Scorched Earth on a live stream. I think it was best to postpone. But I woke up Saturday, no headache for the first time in a couple of days, and uh, really felt that, you know, like when you've been sick and you feel that joy of the feeling you have when you were actually feeling nothing, where you're like, oh, I just, I don't, I feel the absence of bad, and it's such a refreshing feeling that you only appreciate once you come out of feeling bad. I got that. So now I'm, I'm high on life again. Are you willing to concede at this point that this entire hockey shenanigan has been a mistake? No, not at all. This is not the Next end. Question: This is not the end of your hockey career. You will soldier on despite uh, rapidly diminishing cognitive abilities. I got two games this week, and I'm playing in a tournament this weekend. So there's your answer, tough guy. I am surprised to learn that you were not concussed the previous 305 weeks that we've been recording this show. Yeah, and that's that's shocking, right? So you were at your best on those That weeks. was as good as it's going to get. It's kind of downhill. Also, this week, in a separate hockey game, got involved in my first hockey fight. And I'm going to put fight in air quotes. I mean, people were throwing punches, but when you got the full like cage in front of your face, it's not really that threatening. Uh, exciting. Exhilarating, even. This is out of control. This new lifestyle, your hockey lifestyle, is out of control. Wait until fall season rolls around and you join up. Novice League. Wednesday nights, think about it. When it all comes crashing down, I just want you to remember who is the first person who told you that this lifestyle would lead to ruin. My wife? Okay, maybe I was second. Once again, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is brought to you in part by our friends at Fulton and Rourke. Summer is almost here, and we've been telling you about Palmetto, the newest limited reserve fragrance added to Fulton and Rourke's line of solid wax-based colognes. It's perfect for the onset of warmer weather with its notes of cedar and citrus and magnolia. It's a fragrance, but if fragrance isn't really your thing, you may already know that Fulton and Rourke has a menu of other fine men's grooming products to catch your eye. That's right, Chad. We at the Co-Main Event Podcast invite our listeners to check out Fulton and Rourke's two-in-one body wash and shampoo, their foamless shave cream, or outstanding bar soap. 
Whatever your personal grooming routine happens to be, chances are you can take it to the next level with something from Fulton and Rourke. Just go to FultonandRourke.com today and scoop up some palmetto while supplies last or, you know, whatever your little heart desires. As always, use the promo code CME at checkout to get 15% off your first order. So we're going to reschedule, Ben, the Patreon live streaming event. Let me see if I got this correct. This Friday. That's right. May 18th. Is that the right date? Yeah. May 18th at uh, 8 p.m. here in the One True Time Zone, a.k.a. the Mountain Time Zone. That would be 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern Time. So as long as you can avoid any further brain trauma, that's, Which, what, that's what we'll be doing. Somewhat iffy, but I'm going to do my best. And yeah, remember that the live nature of the live stream on this one, only available to $5 and $10 patrons, uh, the, the $1 patrons will have access to it a week or so afterwards. Uh, but if you want to join the party live in progress while we watch Scorched Earth and you do too, then you want to be a 5 or $10 patron. Go over to uh, patreon.com slash co-main event. Sign up. We got music this week from our friend Dion Rodriguez, a music producer from Deltona, Florida. If you like what you hear on the show, you can check him out over on soundcloud.com slash dbeat7. And again, that's the word beats with a Z. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, I suppose if you're a corner man in a championship fight, perhaps you dream of a scenario whereby you do something heroic and end up dominating the headlines come Monday. In reality, if we're talking about you at all, that's probably not good. And in round number two, Kelvin Gastelum takes out the suddenly her suit Jacare Souza in a fight that we want to talk about and you want to listen to about. And in round number three, it's a Bellator 199 grab bag. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. A lot of stuff to talk about this week. A lot of stuff. You know, headed into the UFC 224 slash Bellator 199 weekend, it didn't necessarily look like a weekend where a lot of uh, hashtag shit worth talking about was going to happen. But and it, yet, yeah. and yet, here we are. Yeah, kind of a... Just a, a embarrassment of riches, as you like to say, when it comes to at least interesting conversation topics. First question this week comes to us from Slick Williams. Okay. Assume that's a real name. I what his mama named I him. I assume that's a 1970s uh, pro wrestling character who is a street pimp. Slick Williams writes, so Vitor Belfort woke up a retired man this weekend. Then he left the cage. Oh, hi <laughs> Slick Williams got jokes. Coming in hot. Over under one and a half years before we see the young dinosaur mixing it up with Fedor over in Bellator. Under. Wait, yeah. what's his contract status? Prob probably under. Yeah, that's, that's one of the things that we need to work out here. Uh, this being Vitor, Vitor Belfort's planned last UFC fight over the weekend at UFC 224 against Lyoto Machida, uh, ended in the second round with, at this point, what is basically the patented grizzly Machida front kick knockout. Shades of Randy Couture, frankly, in his, yep. uh, also his retirement fight. Exactly. I believe, uh, kind of makes you think they should stop putting, uh, immediate retirees in there with Lyoto Machida, as now we have a pattern. A pattern has emerged. Uh, also, as uh, my colleague Fernando Pratt has pointed out, uh, another pattern is Vitor losing like some of the biggest fights of his life via front kick to the face. That title shot against Anderson Silva and then now his quote-unquote last fight. Uh, but checking on it, I believe this is just his also his last fight on his current UFC contract. So 
If he wanted to, say, turn up like a bad penny over in Bellator in about 18 months or so, let's not act like we can't picture that happening. Right, or over in Japan. Or or both, frankly. How about this? Vitor Belfort, late entrant in the Bellator Heavyweight Grand Prix. Showing up at 240 pounds and ripped <laughs> with a big-ass mohawk. I saw you tweet over the weekend, and I thought this was uh, an astute observation, that Lyoto Machida appeared to kick Vitor Belfort so hard that he scared himself. Yeah, he made himself sad. Yeah, he, he did kind of. He stood there. He needed a quiet moment of reflection yeah, after this occurred. He needed a moment to himself. Uh, yeah, and man, for one thing, if you didn't already know by now, v- uh, Lyoto Machida... Just a super awesome dude. Just a super nice guy. Uh, and he showed that just in all ways with this Vitor Belfort fight. And Vitor Belfort kept it Vitor all damn week. Showed up in the bathrobe. Chad, showed up in a bathrobe with an inspirational slogan stitched on the back. Which, I really, I want to know more about the bathrobe. And so wait, its use is in that, the Belfort house. Is that a performance bathrobe then? Is that like a... Uh... Is that Vitor Belfort's doing stuff bathroom? Why, why do you need an inspirational saying stitched on the back of your bathrobe is what so I'm getting the, at. You, I, so you, that's my question. Is it so you see it first thing in the morning? You take it off the little hook on the back of the back of the bathroom door and you see that message and you're like, oh, yeah. Because it's – I think I believe the message was you did not wake up today to be mediocre or something along those lines. You see that message and you're like, oh, yeah. Well, I'll, I will ruminate on this as I sip my coffee uh, in the breakfast nook. Or is it so everybody else in the household sees it as, as dad's walking around telling everybody to get the damn shoes on and get out the door for school and they see that message and they're like, okay, there's my reminder that I'm here to be excellent today. But either way, wearing your bathrobe to media day for your last fight tells everybody that however many fucks you had at one point, you are all out of them now. Right. Not just a bathrobe. Uh, f- the full head-to-toe look with full the ba- bathrobe, yeah. pajama bottoms. And sandals with socks. <laughs> and then going to tell us how he's not retiring. This is just his last fight. And he brought his service dog. So Vitor <laughs> Belfort rolls in, robe, pajama bottoms, sandals with socks, with a dog on a leash. Why not? Ready for media day. Yeah. You know what they would say in professional wrestling circles about this Leota Machida Vitor Belfort fight? Everybody got to do their stuff. <laughs> They did. We they went did out there and everybody got to do their stuff. <laughs> Belfort got to show up the week of the fight and just act like a complete crazy person. And then Leoto Machida got to front kick someone and then, you know, kneel down in the side of the cage and say a quiet prayer. Okay. Getting back to Slick Williams' question, though, what are the chances that that really is the last time we ever see Vitor Belfort in a professional fight? I would say zero, right? Like, aren't the chance, aren't, like, if there's somebody out there that wants to pay Vitor Belfort to fight in a ring or a cage, he's, like, he's gonna do that, right? Unless we've just misjudged the guy from the start. Well, he will surprise you. I don't know if he will surprise you in this specific way, but he has been, he's been a surprising character in the past. Yet, the way he talks, like he, when he was talking in the interview with, with MMA Junkie beforehand, the one where he said, hey, I'm not retiring, but this is my last fight, he was still say, he was saying, like, hey, I'm looking for jobs and opportunities, which then makes you wonder, like, okay, so what's he going to do? He's going to go down to the bank, put in an application, uh, wait two weeks when he doesn't get a call, and then Scott Coker is like, hey, what are you doing on New Year's Eve? Uh, suddenly, you're like, okay, I'm back in the game. Because... When you hear him talk, you don't get the sense that he's just 
totally fucking had it with this sport or that he feels like physically he can't do it anymore. He just seemed to feel like maybe he'd come to the end of the road here. But you know how that goes. You take a year off or nine months off. You start feeling good because you're not getting your body beat up all the time. And the next thing you know, you're kind of convincing yourself, hey, I could still do it. I could still go. And you know the market right now has a lot of opportunities for a guy like Vitor Belfort, even if maybe it shouldn't. Yeah, when a 41-year-old professional mixed martial arts fighter says he's quote-unquote looking for opportunities, like we know what those opportunities are going to be, right? right? It, it's not like a, a guy, the guy who owns the boat yard is going to show up at Vitor Belfort's house and be like, hey, Vitor, have you ever thought of, of selling boats and RVs, right? Yeah. He's going to get the opportunity to fight Chuck Liddell. Or, or maybe something. visiting poetry professor at Columbia. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Just uh, we happen to have an endowment. Yeah, just something endowment. to tide him over. Next question this week comes to us from Stephen Arbuckle. And it's a long one, so buckle in. Are the UFC in a tough spot with this Mackenzie Dern weight business? It's fairly obvious that Dern doesn't possess the typical body type of her weight class. And given her apparent attitude to training, it seems like this won't change anytime soon. So what's the likely outcome? We've all heard Joe Rogan tell us a thousand times over the years that Roy Nelson or Johnny Hendricks would be this or that if they only lost 50 pounds. Uh, as Mike Dolce would put it, of, quote, non-functional mass. But in <laughs> okay. 2018, it's probably a bad look to be publicly telling an otherwise healthy, positive role model for young girls that she'd better shift some of that body fat to be successful at her job. Uh, there were no tales of illness uh, given for why she missed weight or significantly just that she, quote, unquote, tried. So this problem won't go away. What's the play here? Uh, first of all, I don't know that we are taking a realistic or fair uh, summation of Mackenzie Dern's body here, right? Like, I don't know that, like, that the problem is that she's overweight. She just didn't make She's in the wrong weight class. Right, she's problem. in the wrong weight class. There you go. Right. I mean, and that's not... I saw a couple people trying to make this point, like, hey, we're fat-shaming Mackenzie Dern. No, we're not. Nobody's out there being like, look at how fat Mackenzie Dern is. Like, everybody's just saying, like, you had a point. You missed it badly. You've missed it as many times as you've made it in your career, you seem to have just accidentally signed up for the wrong, wrong weight class. Here, let us direct you to the proper one. It's the one you almost made basically by accident. Uh, or the one you, you did make and almost hit the limit for by accident in this one. So, I mean, that, that is a perfectly reasonable criticism. And frankly, it's the exact same criticism we would uh, levy at a male fighter. So, like, it would be a, a weird, like, prejudicial thing if we held back on that criticism just because she's a woman. I'm not concerned about the message it sends to, to little girls everywhere, except that, hey, if you sign up for this weight class, make the damn weight. Otherwise, move up and wait, which seems to me what she should do here. Because seven pounds, man, and you weigh in early in the day at seven pounds, you gave up on that weight, cl that weight cut pretty early, it seems. It's strange. Like, Mackenzie Dern seems like a prime example of how the this subculture turns on people like at, at the drop of a hat yeah she's that's true. she's had two ufc fights she's won both of them now she's seven and oh overall as a professional mixed martial arts fighter clearly she comes from uh a brazilian jiu-jitsu family she's a brazilian jiu-jitsu prodigy she showed up in the ufc uh earlier this year with with a certain amount of hype behind her and it just seems like we're, for some people, it seems like we're just kind of waiting for something where we can be like, oh, we don't like you anymore now, Mackenzie Dern, even though you seem like a fine person. You've missed weight twice, and you've got a funny accent that we suspect might be fake. So 
you're on the list, Mackenzie <laughs> Dern, which I just think is a weird thing for us to do. Well, because there doesn't seem to be any real reason to dislike Mackenzie Dern. No, no. Well, I think that part of it is that when it seems like the UFC goes uh, all in behind somebody before they have really proven that in the octagon, before they have their performances have gotten to a point where it justifies a lot of hype. When people see the UFC get behind some fighter and, and like they've kind of anointed them and decided like, okay, this is going to be somebody who matters and therefore we're going to kind of groom the path for them. Then I think that that breeds a certain kind of fan resentment. I think that that's, that's probably part of it. Uh, but also even if you start out with the full buffet of goodwill across the board from fans, you show up seven pounds over Especially in a weight class, you know, where seven pounds is a lot. It would be a lot if you were at heavyweight. You know, people would give you shit for being seven pounds over. You're seven pounds over, uh, you know, at the complete other end of the weight spectrum. That can make a real difference. And we also know how the, the pressure is going to be on your opponent. She's got to accept that fight anyway. Otherwise, we've seen how that goes. If you try to say, no, my, my opponent's too heavy, I won't fight, then everybody's going to pile on her. So Amanda Cooper kind of had to say yes to this one. Uh, and... Especially if you're going up there against somebody's somebody where their whole thing is they want to get you to the ground and use their ground skills on you. Like, yeah, uh, a nice weight advantage would be very helpful. So, like, anybody, you're going to take some shit for that one. Like, I mean, I understand what you're saying in general with the some of the other criticism, the accent stuff, all that. Yeah, sure. But this one, you come out there, especially when part of the narrative for this training camp was that you got invited to leave your team, and it's a good team where, like, they're professionals there at the MMA lab. They they didn't invite you to leave for no reason. There must have been a reason. They didn't like something about what you were doing there. And then you miss weight that badly. It's justifiably going to make people wonder, how seriously are you taking this? And, you know, are you putting in the work for the kind of hype that you're getting? So you think if she moves up to flyweight and makes weight a couple times and wins a couple more fights, people will be on the Dern train all of a sudden? Very possibly. I kind of doubt it. I kind of think people will continue to look around for reasons to not like her for some reason. I don't know. Well, and Whereas if like Nick Diaz missed weight by seven pounds, we would all be like, ha ha, that's hilarious. Nick Diaz <laughs> is so crazy. He's trolling. He's trolling everybody by missing weight by a ton of weight. Uh, but also, why wouldn't you move up to flyweight? At this point, I mean, there well, is. I mean, one. you got you got to if you can't make one fifteen. There's just like nothing else you can do. But they they have the weight class now, so that excuse doesn't exist. Uh, it's kind of a little bit of an open season feel up there since it's a new weight class. Why not? Sure. Yeah. No. I mean, I, I think that's probably what you'll see happen, right? I, I don't know that there's any other real option here. Next question this week comes to us from Roland Bleasy. He writes. Christmas came early for El Pantera. Yair Rodriguez was fired for throwing a hand truck through the window of a butt. Oh, wait. Pardon me. No, I mean trolling the UFC brass on Twitter. Oh, we got so many jokes in listener mail. This Considering time. the UFC's pay slash sponsorship structure, its fickle star making efforts and its and his potential to avoid being thrown to the damn wolves. Is this the best thing that could have happened to Mr. The Panther? Imagine mad genius Scotty Coker working with a prospect like that. Will he be better off in one or Bellator than the UFC? Can he take my guy, Taruto Ishihara, remember him, with him, and make an awesome tag team for Maro to shout about in New Japan Pro Wrestling? Discourse. So this was kind of a weird one. Yep. Right, Ben? Like, Yair Rodriguez pretty much gets cut or uh, news breaks that he's going to be cut kind of out of the blue this week. We had, uh, you know, in the days leading up, an announcement that he was going to... Uh, 
Who was he going to fight? Mad Mags. Oh, that's right. Mago Ben Sharapov. Yeah, there you go. Uh, that it was a done deal. Like the UFC announced it like it was a done deal. Well, UFC then... told the LA Times, I don't know if it was an official announcement, but Dana White told the LA Times that that fight was going to happen. And right. apparently he had not secured the agreement of at least one half of the, the Immediately fight. after it happened, uh, Yair Rodriguez's manager, Ali Abdelaziz, was on Twitter being like, that's news to me. You fast forward a week, and it seems like El Pantera is going to hit the streets unless somebody has a change of heart and mind. And to me, this is just like the perfect example of how sometimes there are drawbacks if you run your enormous, you know, billion dollar mixed martial arts fighting organizations according to the whims of one dude. Yep. Well, and I was really intrigued by Scott Coker's response to this. So you see the story on MMA Junkie where he was asked, uh, do you want to sign Yair Rodriguez now that the UFC has cut him? And his answer was basically, sure, I would love to talk to him if he's really a free agent. And he think what he said is, sometimes you're fired doesn't mean what you guys all think it means. Like, I want to see the letter. I want to see the letter that you get from the UFC saying you've been released from the UFC and you're now a free agent. Um, like, basically insinuating that maybe this is Dana White just popping off as a negotiating tactic, basically being like, all right, you know what? You screwed with us. You, you didn't do exactly what we wanted you to do. Screw you. You're fired. Um, just to get you scared enough to be like, okay, I'll take the fight. Uh, and then turns out you were never actually fired. So who knows if that's what's going on here. Like from Yair Rodriguez's perspective, I could kind of see why he would not want that fight with Mad Mags or why his management or his team or whoever would not want that fight because Mad Mags is super fucking good and yet not super well-known or super highly ranked or highly touted enough that the mass of MMA fans would appreciate what a win over that guy would mean or be able to put a, a loss to that guy in perspective, especially your, your Yair Rodriguez. Well, one minute they really loved you. You know, you had that flying uh, knockout kick of uh, Andre Feely. You beat Andre, Alex Caceres. You beat BJ Penn. Then they throw you in there a little out of your depth with old man Frankie Edgar. You lose that one. And the next fight they want to offer you is the fucking killer with Magomed in his name out of Dagestan, who people don't know, but who is awesome. Like, I I would be at that point, too, where I would be like, hmm, maybe there's another fight for me that I would like a little better than this right now. Right. Well, do you think that Roland Blizzy is correct here in saying that, like, this is actually a good thing for Yair Rodriguez if he does indeed, you know, go somewhere else from the UFC? I mean, I, I personally think it's kind of crazy for the UFC to cut Yair Rodriguez loose. It wasn't that long ago that we were talking about him as a potential important uh, piece to the puzzle and trying to open up uh, the Mexican fight market and trying to like break into Latin America, which the UFC is all but stop talking about at this point. That just doesn't really seem to be a thing on their radar anymore. But like, yeah, yeah, Rodriguez is, is 25 years old and he's 10 and two and he fights like he's in a damn video game. I will tell you this. If he shows up over in Bellator, I will watch. Yeah. And like that to me seems like a guy, if you are the UFC, a, maybe it's time to, in some cases, rethink this matchmaking strategy where we're going to have two awesome young featherweights have an admittedly awesome fight, but where one of them winds up, you know, if you're yeah, yeah Rodriguez, on a on the heels of a two fight losing streak, like if would it be better for for Yair Rodriguez to go someplace else where maybe they would take care of him a little more, if you know what I mean? Or maybe he might get a little bit of that Aaron Pico treatment. Yeah, exactly. Which we might talk about later, where you know you get to keep fighting guys who have losing records or whatever. But uh, yeah, I mean you're right, especially just handing off a really bright prospect like that at this point in his career makes no sense to me. Uh, and 
the whole idea where you're going to go out and announce the fight or tell you know reporters that the fight is happening before you've actually secured the participation of both people involved. And then you're going to get mad when the guy kind of makes you look stupid by saying, like, no, I'm not taking that fight. And the idea that you're going to say, like, okay, why was he fired? For turning down a fight. Well, you also just finished telling us how Nate Diaz keeps turning down fights whenever you offer him. And Nick Diaz will, will turn down fights in, in the past when you'd offer him if it, they just don't think it's interesting enough. Why didn't those guys get fired? Like, it again creates another one of these situations where if you're a UFC fighter, you can't necessarily look at any given situation and know what the consequences will be for each action, which maybe is by design. Last question this week comes to us from David Lotteray, who writes, So George St. Pierre is somehow less than a 3-1 to favorite to beat the junior varsity Diaz brother. Is this an example of people being swayed into thinking Nate Diaz is awesome because, because of his win over Conor McGregor, uh, when really he's a, a middle-of-the-pack lightweight at best? So, Ben, when I said that there was a lot of stuff for us to talk about this week, I wasn't kidding. Rumors out this past week that the UFC, I guess they've confirmed it, or at least confirmed it to someone, that they were, uh, that they're trying to put together George St. Pierre versus, uh, Nate Diaz, uh, for some time later this year, which would be a pretty huge fight, although, uh, is kind of a strange matchup, really, when you think about it. Uh, what do you make? Especially make-? at 155. Right. Well, it seems like, we are already trying to position for the return of Conor McGregor in a way. Like whoever you get, whoever wins George St. Pierre versus Nate Diaz is pretty much set up in the pole position to get uh, the fight in Irishman whenever he should return to the octagon. Uh, what do you make of this? these uh, early odds making George St. Pierre less than a 3-1 to one favorite? Does that seem right to you? Or, or uh, considering the fact that he just won the damn 185-pound title in his comeback fight, do you think George St. Pierre should be getting a little bit more respect? Yeah, I mean, I would pick George St. Pierre all day to beat Nate Diaz just because you know exactly what he's going to do, and it's going to be very similar to what he did against Nick Diaz. Uh, I don't. It's hard for me to know how seriously to take betting odds for a fight that does not seem like it is imminent. Like, it seems like just a, a discussion point at, the, at right now. So I, I don't know what the odds maker's strategy with those kind of things is. It, do you put a line that will get people talking? Do you put what you expect to be the serious line when the fight actually is booked? I, I don't know. I don't know how they do that. But, yeah, I mean, to me, when I saw this one, I felt like, okay, I'm kind of – I'm getting off the carousel here. I'm getting off the GSP and Diaz next fight rumor carousel. Don't talk to me until some shit is actually booked. I'm done. You're taking the long lens view of this. I'm you're, off. You're, you don't want to hear about it until nope. it happens. Wake me up when we have something on paper, Chad. Hey, you know, if I was George St. Pierre, that would also be my attitude. I might just be like, you know what? Tell me when I need to get into camp for whatever Diaz brother you want me to fight at this point. But uh, who knows? We'll see if it happens. That's going to do it for this week's listener mail. If you have questions, comments, concerns that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one.
Well, Ben, in the main event of UFC 224 this past weekend, Amanda Nunez went out there and really made herself at home as women's bantamweight champion, eventually defeating Raquel Pennington by fifth-round TKO. You know, I think we, we should spend some time during this round talking about Amanda Nunez and how uh, she's sort of solidifying herself as the best 135-pound fighter in the world. But I think we should start with Raquel Pennington just because that's sort of where the uh, the attention is as we record this show on Monday afternoon, uh, a couple of days after the event. Clearly, the thing that's grabbing all the headlines here is her corner uh, essentially talking her back into the fight between the fourth and fifth round. She told them, I'm done. I just want to be done. Uh, and they essentially, I don't know if you want to call it a pep talk or an order. But they, they kind of uh, reassured her to the point where she felt comfortable going back out there for the final round against Amanda Nunez. Uh, ended up getting stopped two minutes and 36 seconds into that round via TKO after her already broken nose uh, was crunched a bit more via ground and pound by Amanda Nunez. But where are you on this uh, this issue, which seems to be sort of a divisive one right now in the mixed martial arts world? You know, in a way, I get it. I get what they're thinking. Like they, they feel like, hey, you got one more round to go. It's not like you're getting just severely beaten up. It, the damage is coming more like accumulation. It's not like you looked at that fight and thought, man, somebody needs to throw the damn towel in. But when she came back to the corner, sat on her stool, you could see her kind of hanging her head. She looked mentally broken at that point. And she gets up and she turns to the corner and says, I want to be done. Uh, and then they, their first response is no. I mean, that, it made me wonder, like, what are you, what's the point of sending her back out there? Is it just because you think she'll feel bad about herself if she doesn't go out there, fight for two and a half more minutes and get stopped? Because once she has said, I want to be out, mentally she's out of the fight at that point. I mean, it, it it's going to be really hard, it seems, for her to, like, get back in that zone, that mental state she needs to be in, in order to really compete and, and have a chance in this fight. Uh, so she's kind of, it's a little bit half-hearted when she goes back out there and it's not a surprise to see her get stopped after that. And so it was, was it just like, Hey, you're going to feel better about yourself if you make the referee stop it as opposed to you stopping it? Because that seems a little spurious to me. Yeah. I mean, I think that the reasons that you would want to send her back out there, if you are her corner or her coaches or the people who are close to her, uh, are kind of obvious to me. It's, you know, she's fighting for the UFC Women's Bantamweight Championship. It's almost certainly the biggest fight in Raquel Pennington's life. It probably is not going to get much bigger for her than this one against Amanda Nunez at UFC 224. And maybe you want to sort of uh, protect her from the idea that she quit in what will almost certainly be the biggest fight of her life. And I guess, like, man, if you are her corner and coaches, and we, and as we sit here talking, we don't really know anything about the relationship that Raquel Pennington has with her, with those particular coaches. Uh, but like, if you are really close to her and you are in the gym with Raquel Pennington all of the time, it might be very, uh, seductive to think like she could pull it out, right? Yeah. If you are the kind of, if you're always there with her working, getting ready for those, these fights, you might think like, well, if we could, you know, she might catch a submission. She might drop her with a punch, whatever. And maybe you would feel like you had really missed an opportunity if you would let her you know, opt out of the fight at that point. However, I mean, I, I think all of that is understandable, but then I will say, however, the optics of this thing were really bad, especially like she's already has a broken nose. You send her back out there. The nose gets even worse, you know, damaged even worse by Amanda Nunez. And then the fight ends 
uh, with Raquel Pennington basically streaming blood all over the, her face. Right. And like, I get what you're saying that if you're her coach and you're, you're trying to take a positive mindset at all times, you're thinking like, okay, here's a chance that we have, but they didn't really send her out there with anything to do. It was just, you know, throw everything you got at her, change your mindset, I believe was the other thing you said. And it was like, if you want her to go back out there, I, presumably she thinks she already has been throwing everything she has at Amanda Nunes, but uh, give her something. Tell her, tell her, give her a reason to think that you are going to be able to do something different in this fifth round that you haven't done in the previous four. And when you, you know, you're right that we don't know exactly what their relationship is and maybe they know something about her where they feel like, you know, every once in a while Raquel needs to be pushed uh, past the point where she wants to stop. Seems to me that the time for that is more in training and preparation than on fight night. But again, she, like we said before, she'd been off for a year and a half before this. She's in the championship rounds, which is different for her. And she has reached this point where she'd been pretty badly beaten up and it seems like she wants out of that fight. It made me think, and the people were posting it immediately, that fight with uh, Nate Marquardt and Trevor Whitman where Nate Marquardt's kind of taking a beating, I believe, at the end of the second. He comes back to the stool, and Trevor Whitman's concern right away is for his well-being, and he's trying to get him. He's saying, look at me, look at me, and Nate says, I got nothing left, and immediately, no hesitation at all, he calls it. And granted, yeah. it's a different a fight later in a guy's career. It's not for a title. Maybe you tell yourself that this is a special time, and so you're willing to take a few more risks. Then again, it's a little easier to say on the other side of the fence, isn't it, to, to stand there and be like, no, you go back out there. You, you got more, and she's the one sitting in there with – Blood on a constant stream out of her nose. Yeah, and again, like that's why I say we don't know anything about her relationship with them. We don't know, you know, what that's like. If it's me, I, you know, and it's easy for me to say this as a guy just sitting here talking on a podcast, but like I probably stopped that fight. I would think that uh, anytime an athlete in a sport where the stakes are this high comes comes to the corner and is like, I'm done. I just want to be done. Uh, probably the safe move is is to call it off. I do understand how they might think differently about it in this one specific situation, although the way that it turned out, it kind of made it look like they they uh, might have made the wrong choice there. Uh, and I thought Jimmy Smith made an interesting comment on the broadcast when he was like, well, if Raquel Bennington had said that to the ref, they would have just called the fight right. immediately. But instead, yeah. she said it she said it to her corner. So uh, there's just so many factors at work that we don't really know the answer to. Like if you're Raquel Pennington – and you say, I want to be done to your corner instead of saying it to the referee, do you mean you want to be done or do you mean, like, uh, I need a little pep talk here? Like, we don't know. We don't know how she is as an, a as an athlete. We don't know, uh, you know, what her relationship is like with any of those people. But if it was me, I probably would have stopped it. Probably would have thrown the towel at that point. Well, now it's creating a great image for me. Chad Dunn is standing there in the Raquel Pennington fight kit, towel on his shoulder. <laughs> He, he dramatically reaches up, tosses it into the cage. See, yeah. do you when you throw the towel there, do you aim it at the referee, see if you can hit somebody? Well, I mean, you got to get close to him, right, so he doesn't just miss it. Right. So, I guess so. Yeah. Well, now you want to talk a little bit about the champ? Yeah, Amanda Nunez. Uh, you know, I said she was making herself at home as the 135-pound champion. This was, I believe, her third successful title defense, so you might make the argument she was already at home as the women's bantamweight champion, but it just feels like every time we get a new UFC champion, there's almost like a feeling out process where we try to determine like, okay, what kind of champion is this person going to be? Are they going to be a transitional champion? Are they going to be a long-term champion? Uh, in these last, uh, you know, she had the split decision win over Valentina Shevchenko, but like, you know, with the Ronda Rousey win at UFC 207 and now this, this uh, starching of Raquel Pennington, where it was just, it was never really all that competitive in this fight. 
from the beginning. This just this just felt like a, a fight where after watching it, Amanda Nunez had established herself as a cut above maybe all of the rest of the next best competition at 135 pounds. Yeah, I mean, she seems to be just all around getting better. And granted, this was a fight that everybody really expected her to win. She came in as a huge favorite in this one. The, the betting odds really got crazy toward the end of the week. Uh, but from the start, you know, she's backing Raquel Pennington against the fence and just unloading on her and seemed like she came there to end that fight. And there were fewer and fewer paths to victory available for Raquel Pennington as that fight wore on. So, yeah, uh, watching this one, and you're right, she did start to feel more like the champ. And it made me feel like, man... Is this the the point where you say, hey, the UFC is going to want to put her up against Chris Cyborg or whoever in a super fight, and then at that point it's going to wish that it did a little bit more proactive promotion for Amanda Nunes? Because it hasn't felt like just begrudging acceptance on the UFC's part that she's your women's bantamweight champion. But ever since Ronda Rousey was no, is no longer it, you kind of don't care that much anymore if you're the UFC. Like, it just feels like they're mailing it in yeah. when it comes to Amanda well, Nunez. Well, and we, we have talked at length on this show about Amanda Nunez and the kind of opportunities that she presented the UFC to promote to different demographics that, that aren't necessarily uh, your stereotypical uh, fight bros, right? Like, she seems to offer up some opportunities to sort of uh, reach out to different groups uh, and, you know, bring new people into the tent, uh, all of whom would essentially uh, assumedly be there with their pay-per-view money. Uh, but it doesn't feel like the UFC has done really done that. Uh, it doesn't, uh, you know, feel like it's all that excited about Amanda Nunez. I think you're right. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's just kind of a mystery. And, and at this point I was going to ask you if you felt like the, uh, cyborg fight is the right fight to make. I think it is. If you're Amanda Nunez, I don't know that you, you know, the physical stakes are obviously pretty high. You go to, to fight a larger athlete who's known to do a lot of damage to her opponents. But like, if you're, uh, we, we all think Amanda Nunez is really good at 135 pounds. If she moves up and fights Cyborg either at 140 or 145 and gets beat, I don't think that she loses that much, uh, you know, momentum in her own division. I don't think we would think all that much less of her. But I think you might be right in that if that's the fight you want to make and you want it to be a big super fight, uh, yeah, you might wish that you had made a slightly larger deal out of your really talented women's bantamweight champion. Right, and there were plenty of opportunities. Like, I noticed I was talking to my wife uh, after this fight, and she was kind of asking, oh, you know, how were the fights last night to, after she went to bed early? And I was talking to her about it. And once I started to tell her the story, like, well, you know, uh, it was the first time two openly gay athletes fought for a UFC title – and they all know each other, you know, that they, they've they all been, like, kind of friends and training partners before. And after the cage, after the fight, you had this scene in the cage where it's Raquel Pennington and Tisha Torres and uh, Amanda Nunez and uh, Nina Ansaroff. And they're all kind of in the cage. And, and my wife is going, wait, wait, wait. How did I not know that this was happening? If you had told me that, like... Two lesbian fighters and then their, their partners who are also all been friends and training partners at various times were going to fight each other for a UFC title. I would have stayed up for that shit. Right. How did I not know that this was happening? It was like, yeah. And as I think Matt Roth pointed out on Twitter, like, hey, remember how WME, IMG, like their big promise was going to be we're leveraging our industry contacts. That's why we don't need a big marketing division anymore. That's why we can fire all these people. Uh, and yet you can't get these two on Ellen. You can't get you can't get a little shine for that storyline. You can't use like some of your Hollywood industry contacts to like 
get that story out there? Like, what good is it having a huge talent agency as your owner if you're not going to be able to do stuff like that right. when the opportunity arises? Yeah. You want to reach the non-fight fan fans, right? Right. Like, and they, like, but the UFC didn't really highlight that angle at all uh, and didn't really talk about it during the fight all that much either. Um, over on CNN.com, our guy Scott Harris wrote a pretty good story about it, uh, and it did big numbers. Like, it was a... It was a good success in terms of a story uh, about UFC 224, and and it just seemed like the UFC kind of uh, either knowingly or like maybe just negligently kind of whiffed on it. Like I can't think of a reason why. It feels in a lot of ways like after in the post Rousey era, the UFC has kind of, if not given up, then at least gotten less uh, aggressive about trying to market women's MMA to women. Like, it just seems to see it as just another piece of the landscape. And instead of, like, trying to find the, these audiences that are not usual consumers of your product, the way it did with Ronda Rousey, right. and which was really easy to do with Ronda Rousey, uh, now it seems like it's kind of given up on that. Yeah, and I mean, and we've talked about this a lot on the show before also. It just doesn't feel like the UFC has ever really pioneered a new way to t try to sell an athlete or try to sell a fight. You know, even with Ronda Rousey, even though she was the first like breakout women's star, it was kind of the same sort of story as always is like, oh, she's really good at fighting. Like she's she's a super tough badass, Ronda Rousey. Well, and just she like could every do a other... lot of the heavy lifting for you. You just put her on camera, and she would do a lot of it. Right. It just doesn't seem like they've ever really uh, branched out and and tried to s tell all that many different stories about you know Francis Ngannou or about Amanda Nunez or about. Uh, these people that might give you a, a slightly different look or allow you to like tell your stories in a different way. It just doesn't seem like even today, even when owned by Hollywood mega giant Endeavor, it just doesn't feel like they have, have really put much behind that. Yeah, no, they wait for Chad Dunnis to write the story about Francis Ngannou, and then they just repeat those talking points on the broadcast. That's right. Uh, all right, you want to do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two? Yes. Ben, did you watch Bellator 199? You know I did. How about... The down the stretch of the third round in John Fitch versus Paul Daly, where Paul Daly is literally booing and talking shit through the cage while John Fitch has back mount and is, is punching him in the face. Are you fucking kidding me? I don't know if this is awesome or like terrible, to be honest with you. I would, I would, I would shade toward terrible, except that Paul Daly literally booed. He was on the ground and he literally went, boo. Which... <laughs> he sounded like the old lady from Princess Bride where yeah. she's getting married in the dream sequence. And she goes, boo, boo. Hard to beat that, really. <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? Chad, last week on Just Saying Stuff, we talked about Mike Perry joining oh. the Jackson Wink MMA gym. Yeah, yeah. How's that going? Well, this week or late last week maybe, I, I see a story where Mike Perry – tells everybody on social media that he had a DNA test done. It came back 2% African, so now he is, quote, legally allowed to say the N-word. And my Are You Fucking Kidding Me goes out not to Mike Barry. Really? Wait, wait. Really? Because it goes out to the people who ignored our can't-miss idea for a constant live stream of the interactions in that gym. Because are you fucking kidding me? How did we not get a live reaction from John Jones at that? Are you fucking kidding me? It's sitting right there. You're ignoring this golden idea. We all need to know how that shit goes over in the Jackson Winkle John Jim, and you are denying us this opportunity. Are you fucking kidding me? You're fucking kidding me. You know what else we would have got if it was if it was a 24-hour Mike Perry live stream? What's that? Mike Perry pouring over the DNA results. <laughs> like opening the, the letter and going through it. I mean, I would have watched that also. Just saying. Yeah. 
That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Well, Chad, speaking of UFC 224, you know who went out there and had themselves a damn Cracker Jack in the co-main event? Was it Jacare? That's right. Jacare and your boy Kelvin Gastelum, they go out there and, you know, one of those fights where at first looks like everybody's going to get to do their things. Everybody's going to get to do their stuff. Jacare is going to get to to try some some jujitsu. Kelvin Gastelum is going to get to land that sharp counter left hand he has. Uh, at a certain point, though, it just kind of gets crazy where you keep thinking this fight's going to end soon and then it just doesn't. And it just rocks back and forth. A hell of a good fight. Just or just a hell of a fun fight to watch. Uh, and in the end, Kelvin Gaslam gets the decision and now start talking about title shot. First of all, do you agree with the decision in this one? But the judge's decision? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was a split decision. But at the same time, I think uh, Kelvin Gaslam pretty clearly won those second two rounds. Uh, the, you know, almost knocked Jacare out in the second round. Right, uh, but he had like one bright moment in the second round. But then, like towards the end of the round, Jacare is tagging him. But it just yeah. like Gaslam wears it a lot better. Right. Well, yeah, and like I guess it just comes down to like the weird and pretty much constant singularity of MMA judging. In that, like, if you knock a guy down with a punch, does that basically like negate the rest of the of what happens in that round? And the answer is is oftentimes yes. And sometimes I'm kind of uh skeptical of that notion like i don't necessarily know that you should be able to turn around on on one punch but like the rest of it was close enough and the gaslam seemed like he was sort of getting the best uh, of the punching combinations for most of that round that in this instance i do think the fact that as i saw someone put on twitter it looked like somebody pulled a chair out from under uh jacare suzu when he got hit with that one two combo by galvin gaslam to me that did swing the the second round okay follow-up question now Kelvin Gastelum has a two-fight winning streak at middleweight. Um, that, after his previous three-fight winning streak, was snapped when Chris Weidman went out there and submitted him, which everybody seems to have just conveniently forgotten really quickly. But then he bounced back, knocked out Michael Bisping, who took the fight on like two weeks' notice or whatever it was after the George St. Pierre fight. Uh, and then split decision over... Let's say a mature Jacare Souza. Oh, wait, a Jacare Souza who's growing his hair out for summer also. Let's not forget that. No one does that, but okay. Um, does the, do you look at that and you say, all right, I'm ready to think about Kelvin Gaslam in the mix at, as a title contender at 185? I mean, it seems fun, right? It does. Like, we got to see what happens first with Bobby Knuckles taking on Yoel Romero in a, in a, what is it, a couple months, a couple weeks? When is that? Is that coming right up? Soon. UFC 225, I believe, soon. Uh, we got to see what happens there. But, like, yeah, man, like, uh, Jacare Souza is technically the number two middleweight in the world. Kelvin Gastelum just went out and, and beat him in this fight. Uh, Kelvin Gastelum is a fun fighter, a tough young guy who brings a lot of skills to the table. Like, if you told me you were going to put him in there with the winner of Romero, uh, Robert Whitaker, I wouldn't be mad. I would, no. I would also listen to other options, but I wouldn't be mad. I would be mad if I was Chris Weidman. That's when I'd be mad. Because it'd be like my last fight, I submitted this dude. Yeah. Well, and well, Chris Weidman is in such a weird position in that middleweight division right now as a guy that we thought might be the longtime champ there after he defeated Anderson Silva. At this time, he seems like kind of forgotten in a lot of ways. Like, or, or like he's, 
he's like standing behind the curtain or something, and and we do it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind. About yeah. Chris Weidman. Well, I mean, three fight losing streak. Then he beats Calvin Gaskell, and then he has to have, keep having surgeries. So yeah, I guess that'll do it to you. Uh, it also though, it makes me wonder. You take a guy like Kelvin Gastelum who wanted to be a welterweight, real real bad. Uh, couldn't really do it. UFC made him be a middleweight. Even when he's a middleweight, he keeps talking about how he wants to go back down to welterweight. But he keeps winning these fights against legit, well, legit middleweights. And so you're like, okay, dude, if you can beat Jacare, just be a middleweight. You beat Jacare, you beat Tim Kennedy, you beat Vitor Belfort, uh, beat Johnny Hendricks, who probably should have been a middleweight himself uh, all along. So sure, like you have the the chops to hang at middleweight, and that still a part of me having that narrative in my mind. Pictures him in there with Yuel Romero and thinks, uh-oh, that might not go so well. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, I guess you think that about anyone when they get in there with Yoel Romero, though, Except right? Except with like, Bobby fucking Knuckles. It could could go any number of ways anytime you get Yoel Romero in there. Uh, yeah, I mean, as, as, he's clearly a middleweight at this point, right, Kelvin Gaslam? He might lack a little bit of size against the, the bigger guys in that division, but he's been holding his own so far. Didn't have a ton of luck making 170 on a, on a consistent basis. Uh, nobody hated him for it, I would point out, or talk about how maybe he has a fake accent, but you know, whatever. We gave him tons of shit for it, but all right. We, <laughs> we've, uh, we've made peace with Kelvin Gaslam now up at, at 185. I don't, yeah, man. Well, like, why not? He seems like he's in the, he's in the mix to me. Uh, my personal favorite part of this fight, Ben, was after Jacare Souza almost got that arm bar at the end of the first round. Uh, Kelvin Gaslam kind of squirmed out of it just before the bell. But when the horn to round one and to end round one sounded, Kelvin Gaslam turns around and walks back to his corner. Jacare Souza rolls over onto his back and looks in the direction of his corner as if he's thinking, that's a long way. <laughs> and that's when I was like, uh-oh, we might be in some trouble here. Jacare Souza might be getting tired. He's 38. Well, hell yeah. I mean, come on. Thirty-eight. That as as a thirty-year-old man myself, that's the point when you know my kids are asking me to get up and get them something from the kitchen, and I cast that same glance over there to think, all the way over there, that's where you want me to go. So I know what he's feeling, and also little little wobbly then the second round as well. But that one more from punches it seemed. But I gotta say, you saw him in the second round displaying all the symptoms of a man who has gotten prematurely tired in his prize fight. And yet, he sucked it up and soldiered on through that shit. Because even when he was, like, doing the thing where, like, he would throw uh, a strike and then do kind of like a full-body sigh afterwards, which you start to see super tired dudes doing, he's still going to haul off and kick you to the body and throw hooks and catch you with him and shit like that. Like, even though he looked tired, he never really fought tired. Yeah. What did you make of the exchange at the end of the second round? Uh, I believe he gets kind of rocked by a punch, and then the the horn sounds. Jacare Souza starts walking in the wrong direction, uh, f- away from his corner. Who's the referee here? Was it Leon Roberts? I can't remember right off the top of my yeah, head. But uh, the referee basically has to grab him and try to direct him back to his corner. And then as soon as the referee lets go of him, Jacare all, all but collapses. Right, he kind of stumbles, goes down a little bit. Uh, but they get him back to the corner. They get him uh, ready to go for round three. Like it was a kind of a weird exchange, though. It's the kind of thing where. Uh, Maybe it's like the the sort of like typical MMA thing where we're just like, oh, this dude just collapsed in the cage, but he's probably fine. Yeah. Probably fine to go another five. So what do you what do you make of Jacare though? Now, I mean, for one thing, can we take a second and appreciate Jacare as one of those 
awesome fighters who never, or at least at this point, has never won a UFC belt. Because yeah. you look at the guy and like his career losses, you know, always interesting to me, guy lost his first pro fight, uh, like in a jungle fight event in Brazil. But like when he got kind of on the big stage, his losses, Gegard Mousasi, where he got that weird upkick knockout loss in Dream uh, back in 2008, Luke Rockhold. Uh, for the Strike Force middleweight title, and obviously Luke Rockhold, a pretty good fighter himself. Uh, UL Romero, who arguably one of the best middleweights in the world. Bobby fucking Knuckles, the best middleweight in the world right now. Uh, and then now Kelvin Gastelum. I mean, that's kind of a hell of a career for Jacques Array. What do you do with him now? Does it, if, you know, two losses and his last three against the kind of guys where it feels like, okay, that was a title eliminator kind of deal, uh, do you now just put him into like, okay, let's see what kind of fun we could have with Jacques yeah. Array. I mean, both, right? I think you can still, he's still a top contender. And I, I think there are some fun matchups in that middleweight division that aren't necessarily totally outside the title picture. Like you could definitely match him up against Chris Weidman if you wanted to. And I wouldn't argue with you. Would watch. I, you could match him up even with a guy like Michael Bisping. And that I would think that that might be pretty fun. Would watch. So like, even though he's getting up there in, in, in age, and even though, as I said at the end of the first round, it kind of looked like he came out in this fight thinking, well, I will submit Kelvin Gastelum in the first, and if I do not, I will just gut it out from there. <laughs> like, even though he did that, like, he, he still got, he's, he's not done by any stretch of the imagination. He still looks super dangerous in this fight at a lot of, a lot of instances. So, yeah, I think Jacare Souza can, you know, he doesn't seem like he's suddenly going to do a backflip and win the UFC title anymore but he also seems like one of those guys that could totally win the ufc title if like you know the right injury happens you're in a tough spot you got to stick jacare souza in there because he can submit anybody right it could happen you know the last thing i'll say is that i got a little bit worried to start of this fight you know how he does the gator crawl to get in the cage yeah it looked like he was gonna gator crawl back to his corner after the end of round one well doing the gator crawl at the start of the fight for the first time, it looked a little bit geriatric. Oh. It looked like the gator was getting up out of the recliner, you know, and yeah. like after a unplanned afternoon nap. Uh, <laughs> and it was kind of like, oh man, I don't know. Is this, are we going to see Jacare have one of those nights where you show up and you're suddenly old? Didn't quite happen that way, uh, but you could see it on the horizon. Also, if you're doing the gator crawl before the fight, is that the kind of thing where you're like, well, I gotta gotta give the fans what they want, so let's make sure they get the gator crawl here, just in case just right things don't go my way. Yeah. Anyway, that's gonna do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, the UFC wasn't the only organization having fun on Saturday night. Bellator 199 also went down from the SAP Center in San Jose, California. And this thing was also pretty much chock full of crazy stoppages. You know you're having a time when Czech Congo is knocking people out in the first round. Yeah, and Big John McCarthy's going to get in the cage to do the interview afterwards and basically be like, Wow, it has been so long since you finished a fight. <laughs> Let's start off talking about the main event. Ryan Bader puts Muhammad Lawal down in just 15 seconds. Caught him with that step-in left hook. Uh, and looked like he uh, pulled the battery out of the robot for a minute there against Muhammad Lawal, then follows it up with uh, punches on the ground to get the TKO. He advances in the heavyweight Grand Prix tournament, now in the semifinals against uh, Matt Mitrione. 
that may well end up being the 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 best, most competent, most uh, not geriatric fight of the tournament. So we'll have to wait and see. Uh, did you catch this fight? And do you feel solid now in my prediction that Ryan Bader is going to win the whole thing? Feel a little more solid. Yeah, I flipped over just in time to catch this fight, uh, all 15 seconds of it. Um, it does make me wonder a little bit when, okay, so you you tag Mola Wall, you put him down, and then you finish him off with strikes on the ground. And afterwards, Mola Wall is like, I'm moving to middleweight. And you're moving on to fight like the most legit heavyweight in the tournament. Right. And Bader, I believe, weighed in for this thing at 225, which I have to admit is not quite as big as I thought he would be. Because uh, Mitrione's a legit heavyweight fighter. So are there con- some concerns on the part of, of Camp Dundas to make good on our prediction that Bader's going to be just too much outsized by the man Matrione? Maybe, yeah. Well, first of all, uh, Matt Matrione's going to get hit by a, a bus and have to be replaced by Miracle Krokop, and that's just pretty much a given at well, this that's, point. Right, there's how Vitor Belfort gets in this tournament, right? <laughs> no, he gets in on the other side oh, okay. when Chael Sonnen gets caught uh, money laundering or something. Uh, and so then we do Fedor to, versus Vitor? I mean, Fedor, Vitor. You could do a lot worse. Winner takes on Krokop Bader. Did you catch uh, Bellator did a thing where Matt Mitrione kind of like – skyped in his pick for this fight they love some skype don't they uh and he's on vacation in mexico and we all know that everyone loves to retweet the bjorn rebney mexico tweet <laughs> yes. over on twitter bellator playing it totally straight just saying matt mitrione up on the left hand corner of the screen it said mexico and i was like why didn't somebody get in there and put three just exclamation, put the exclamation points, points. come on yeah. you know you want to shirtless drinking a drink picking bader and then saying uh he better he better get ready because he's going to whip his ass. So basically like your classic Bellator spot. You know what, though? This did not diminish my excitement for this tournament at all because no. I really like what you have. On one side of the bracket, you have like legit but still weird fight in the light heavyweight champion taking on like the only actual real heavyweight left in the thing pretty much. Uh, and then on the other side of the bracket, you have just for funsies, <laughs> Fedor and Chael, yeah. uh, which, come on, you can't go wrong here. I'm all in for it. Oh, man. I was absolutely thinking about that myself the day after this thing happened, just thinking that Bellator absolutely lucked out and got what you have to think are the four people that they wanted in the semifinals in the semifinals. Like, from here on out, it almost doesn't matter what you get. Like, it would be just as crazy if you got Chael Sonnen against Matt Mitrione in the finals as it would if you got Fedor against Ryan Bader. I kind of think the only disappointing outcome is Fedor versus Mitrione because we already saw that one again. That, you know, that would be the least crazy thing that you could have happen. But at the same time, like Fedor did drop Mitrione in that fight. Like he lost to Mitrione, well, first round TKO, I believe. But at the same time, like he wasn't totally out of it. So if you wanted to run that one back, it would probably be uh, the least sort of like uh moonshot out of the park grand slam home run for the finish of the Bellator tournament. But I would also still be interested in it just because it was relatively close the first time. How about this card just as a whole? I was a little bit surprised and kind of checking out the, the web traffic on MMA junkie on fight night to see that the interest in Bellator 199 seemed to be about even with the interest in UFC 224. Do you chalk that up to it being free as opposed to 65 bucks for UFC 224 uh, do you chalk it up to people who are getting excited about this tournament, that there are just enough names on this one that people could recognize? What is it? 
I think it's probably mostly the positioning of being opposite UFC 224, but offering your product for free. Although on the other hand, I do feel like, you know, against all odds, the Bellator Heavyweight Grand Prix has gained a little bit of traction that people like have kind of bought into the, uh, to the nature of it, just sort of as a kind of a circus tournament that is going to be fun and has some names that you recognize and, and, uh, we're going to put them all together in a brown paper bag and then one guy is going to come out of it. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, like, I don't think it hurts. And especially just the kind of crazy way that both of these uh, fight cards turned out. I think that there was probably a lot of sort of like flipping back and forth or at the very least, if you're watching UFC 224, probably keeping one eye on, you know, the internet to see Bellator or whatever you can do. Uh, so yeah, it, it turned out to be like kind of a cool night of fights all the way around that I didn't necessarily expect. Uh, what about your guy, Jonathan Parker Fitch, Ben matriculating over to Bellator. Yeah. At uh, the age of 40, at the age of 40. And with a, with like a, a very now haircut, <laughs> you feel like he's, he's in the zeitgeist with that haircut. Yeah. He, and, and getting a win over Paul Daly. Uh, that was exactly how that one was going to go though. Right. Right. Like in the, like as it played out, I thought to myself, is this Bellator like, Telling Paul Daly to shut the lights out on his way out, like it seems like everybody kind of knew what this what was going on. Here. Well, and he was pissed off at Bellator way before this. They give him this fight. I, you know, I interviewed him beforehand and I asked him, like, don't you think John Fitch is just going to come in there and look to take you down and hold you down? And don't you think that's going to piss you off? And his answer was. Like, well, you know, he's going to do what he thinks is the, his best chance at victory. That's the way this game works. It's my job to stop him, uh, you know, and that's just how it is. And I was like, okay, that's a very reasonable take on it. And then he goes out there. He does exactly <laughs> that. And instead of t- thinking of it as his responsibility to stop John Fitch, he turns instead and starts yelling at the, the commentators about how boring this shit is and they're not getting a lot of new fans this way. Boo. Boo. What about Aaron Pico? We brought him up earlier. I'm going to give you the open floor here. He gets the... Uh, First round TKO win over Lee Morrison, the great Lee Morrison. Uh, 21-year-old Aaron Pico now starting to make his way a little bit in Bellator. And frankly, is one of those guys that Bellator scooped up, uh, you know, before he really had any pro fights and is now just kind of hoping that he he becomes the thing that we think that he can become. What? Where are you at on Aaron Pico? Like, you think that he is, he's got a bright future or is it just still sort of a wait-and-see approach? I'm interested. I'm interested to see where we can go with this because uh, we've seen the last two fights. That guy can stand there and rip you to the body. Yes, he can. Now can he do it against somebody with a legit record? That's what I want to see. Uh, it seems like you could you could feel Bellator changing the plan a little bit. Like the, His pro debut, you gave him a guy who is like a legit fighter. He got beat, and then you give him a, a few softballs. He knocks those right out of the park. Now's the time to really up the competition a little bit if you want us to stay interested, especially because if you're also hoping, if you're thinking like, hey, we got a young fighter here, we need to get him some experience and some seasoning, he's not getting a whole lot of experience when he's going out there and finishing somebody right. in 60 seconds. Longest fight of Aaron Pico's pro career, three minutes and 45 seconds so far. He does have the three wins in a row now, so I think you're right. It might be time to uh, you know, ease him forward in competition, although it kind of strikes me like how do you do that? Like who do you find? Uh, who is on Aaron Pico's level, but would still have, you know, comparable experience or would be a guy that you think, uh, and I guess if you're, and if you're Bellator, you don't want Aaron Pico to lose again, right? No. So you gotta, you gotta find someone for him who appears legitimate, 
and is skilled enough to maybe give him a fight, but at the same time, you still want Aaron Pico to win. I don't know that that's all that easy of a matchmaking chore, you know, at the like highest professional level. Especially because you know if you get a call from Rich Chow and he's like, hey, we want you to fight Aaron Pico, you know what's going on on the other end of that phone. It's like the same thing we talked about where if the UFC calls you and wants you to fight Gokan Saki, it's not because they really want to be in the you business. It's because they have sized you up as a certain kind of fighter. Yeah, that's uh, that's probably right. That's probably right. Uh, Aaron also looking like he was headed to the prom after this fight. <laughs> I don't know if you saw him in his suit uh, getting interviewed in the locker room, but it kind of looked like maybe he borrowed from his dad, borrowed a suit from his dad to go to the prom. Maybe maybe he's going to the prom later. It was a damn Saturday night. I hear that Saturday uh, night in May. Come on, John Fitch and his haircut are going to be chaperoning down at the prom. Tonight, so. I hear they're going to be handing out alt-right leaflets outside the park. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, let's go ahead and do Just Saying Stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your Just Saying Stuff? Jed, did you read over on MMA Fighting today, Big Dave Meltzer has an astute analysis of the UFC's deal with ESPN+. Plus. I've been hearing you talking about it all day. Well, it's worth reading. It's worth your time. Uh, one of many interesting observations there is he, for one thing, refers to basically the UFC as the loss leader for uh, ESPN Plus because 150 million for 15 events for a subscriber service means you know you need to get so many new subscribers that it seems like you're not really planning on exactly making your money back right there. Um, so much as just having something that will get people in the door over at ESPN Plus. But he points out 15 events, 150 million a year uh, on this deal. You've basically established the U.S. market price for a live UFC event at $10 million per event, which I'm just saying is something I might want to think about if I were on one of these 12 fight cards in 2019 and I'm making 10 and 10 and I'm looking at the overall payroll of a UFC event, uh, which is usually somewhere around a million bucks or so. And then I'm comparing it to the $10 million per event that the UFC is getting to put these on. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, Ben, I'm just saying I'm going to read a sentence here that starts weird and it only gets weirder. Oh, good. Chuck Liddell officially unretired today on the MMA Fortnite and indicated that he's probably going to take on Tito Ortiz, perhaps in the new Golden Boy MMA promotion. Okay. So that's not a sentence I felt like I was going to be saying in 2018. And I'm going to read you this quote from Chuck Liddell. Please do. To be honest, in my mind, I'd like to take two good warm-up fights, and then I'd like a shot at John Jones. I'm serious. I'd like a shot at him. This week, I'm just saying, what do we have to do to keep Chuck Liddell away from John Jones? Oh, I know. We chain him to a radiator somewhere, Ben. Maybe we could pay him to just stay retired and give him like a cushy UFC executive job. That's a great idea. I was thinking maybe we knock him on the back of the head with something hard and throw him in a truck. And then we, we, we say bon voyage on a, on a like cross country adventure. Well, if the idea of keeping him away from John Jones, I thought was to avoid hard knocks to the head. Okay. Well, there, there's one flaw. In my idea. Just but I think one. when Chuck Liddell Only wakes up, one. he might be mad at first, but he's going to get into the road trip eventually. Oh, yeah. He's going to catch the spirit. No, I mean, he'll he'll wake up, he'll be missing his shirt, and he'll just think, like, I must have been having a pretty good time. Let's keep it going. Uh, but also, if I can add a just saying to your just saying stuff, um, when you have to, when you were talking about what fight you want and you have to specify that you're serious. Yep. I'm serious. Not a good sign. Yeah, not a great one. 
Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week to talk about uh, what's happening. What's the event? Damien Maya. Damien Maya and Kamara Usman over there in Chile. Santiago, Chile. Santiago, Chile. Uh, So we'll tell you everything that happened in that. We'll look ahead to the rest of the month and mixed martial arts action. Don't forget about Scorched Earth this Friday night. Don't forget about the streaming event of Scorched Earth. You're going to want to see that cloud fall, man. You still got some time to get super scared for the cloud fall. Our only reward is bringing men to justice. As of right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. I heard that uh, one reviewer referred to Scorched Earth as kind of fun or almost fun. And in fairness, didn't they say uh, kind of fun for a while? Don't mention that. It's going to be a good time. We're going to make sure of